In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I have a vacation Bible school complaint, and I'm not sure who to give it to. And what makes this worse is that it's 56 years too late. But I figured I'd get it off my chest. Vacation Bible school, by the way, I've seen it, been in it, all that kind of thing. It, it's great. I love what St. John's does in Vacation Bible School. But then there was 1962. And Vacation Bible School at St. John's, I remember a little differently. And here's my complaint. We probably did a lot of fun stuff. We probably sang songs, and I'm sure the food was good, and they had cookies and things like that. No problem. But the main craft of the week that we were supposed to complete in the week of vacation Bible school, now there's the rub. I don't know if y'all know what burlap is, usually sacks with grain and things like that and stuff that uh, you carry around. Burlap is pretty heavy. Think of maybe a, uh, a corded uh, welcome mat at your house. But for some reason, our job and our craft that we were supposed to make that week to take home to our parents and show everybody, they gave us a piece of burlap and they gave us a couple of crayons. And we were supposed to write the Ten Commandments <laughs> with crayon on a piece of burlap. I remember struggling that week. <laughs> I pushed hard on that burlap, and other people did it. Somehow the girls did it. <laughs> what is it? What, I don't, what is it? Anyway, I wish you had seen this piece of burlap that I brought home to my parents. It, it didn't have, it was scrawled. And I didn't get to, I think I got the commandment maybe number five, uh, maybe four. But it really bothered me. One, that we had to do that. And then when they read it to us, I realized I was taking home basically a piece of junk. And I wasn't going to impress anybody. And I wanted to. I mean, I'm a real people pleaser type person, or I have. I don't know. That's, I guess we all kind of do that. I wanted to look good, and I was looking pretty bad, and I didn't like it. And I still don't like it 56 years <laughs> to now. I didn't like the commandments either. It was tough for me to even walk in this church because I walked in and looked up there and said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And I wondered what I had done wrong. But I knew I was in trouble. But I really wasn't sure what for. The commandments. I wonder what you're like when you read the commandments. I'd like to see the look on your face when you read them. And another complaint while I'm complaining was they left off the first part. And I think 
this morning it's really the most important one for us to look at. If anybody gives you or tells you to tell them the, the Ten Commandments, I, I would guess that by and large you would start with, Thou shalt have no other gods but me. But that's not how it starts. And that's crucial. Do you know how it starts? God speaking. And he says, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that freed you from being slaves. Then he begins to command. Why? Because God does incredible stuff for people. And it's only on the basis of that that he then asks them to do things. Did you notice in the Psalms the same thing? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth, I'll fill it. So the intent of these commandments, by the way, if you keep them, you wouldn't need locks on your doors. We wouldn't need a police force. We wouldn't need jails, prisons. But if you kept them, you'd keep them out of just sheer gratitude. Great gratitude for the Lord and what he did for you. But see, religion's aim and impulse kind of takes over, doesn't it? The religious impulse is everywhere because we are finally, fully, and desperately, all of us human beings are religious takes all kind of forms. The religious impulse expresses itself in all kinds of ways. And what is this impulse? Well, this impulse is that I know deep down inside something is wrong in this world and in me. And there's a gap between me and the God who made this, if there is a God. And I need to fill it, I need to bridge that gap by whatever efforts I can do. We usually learn from early on from our parents, we get this idea of the sense of God. And I remember things began to, in my life, stack up on my shoulders. I don't know about you. I remember one of the things my grandmother used to say. And it stacks up with these Ten Commandments and this religious impulse that I had to want to do something about my situation. She would say something like this often, and I know that it was my fault, but she would say, if you think I'm angry, wait till your dad gets here. <laughs> okay? I began to make that, that leaked over into a lot of things, and it leaked over into God, because if dad, you could just stretch it out. If my dad was angry with me, what do you think, God? Wait till God shows up. And that's what we tend to think about these commandments. But it, there's a problem here. There's a deep problem with all of us. We're desperately religious. We want to settle this religious issue, and we want to do, know what we have to do to make it happen. And often we can grow up in families, and we can grow up with friends or different things. And have you ever been in a situation, a relationship, maybe it's with your parent, maybe it's with a brother or sister, Maybe it's with a coworker, friend, something like that, where you can't do anything right. And the more you try, the realize, you realize the marker has shifted. 
and there's more demands, and you didn't do that well enough, and when will you ever do it well enough? And this tells me a lot about you because you never do anything well enough. Have you ever been in that situation? You will be. The Bible is right about us. We are desperately turned in on ourselves, twisted, self-centered. When I'm a little child growing up, the horizon depends on where I stand. As Archbishop Temple famously said it. And I need a new center. I need a new way of living outside of me, outside of my self-centeredness, outside of my twisted religious impulse to try to please and to do, and when will it ever be right, and it won't be. And that's why we have the gospel this morning. And that's why we have this account. It really happened. Jesus is walking through a field with his disciples, and they're plucking grain because they're hungry. And very well-meaning people come alongside and say, you've broken the law. You've broken the law of the Sabbath. You're doing something. You're not supposed to be doing something on the Sabbath. Why are you breaking the law? What is this? Well, one of the commandments, as you know, is remember the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath day. The problem is the religious impulse took over. And a group that was well-meaning and organized to help Israel get it right, the Pharisees, they basically had this religious impulse like you and I, and, and all they could think of when they saw the commandments, they forgot about the first part like you and I forget about, and they concentrated on the commandments themselves, and they said, you know, the reason that we've had such trouble and the reason when the law was given to us and everything and we blew it, it's because we're not pure enough. We've got to be more and more pure. We've got to be pure, pure than anybody on earth. And then God will see, and then God, maybe he will accept us, and then things will go right for us. And so they wanted a do-over. The Pharisees were the group that held sway in the day, and they wanted a do-over. They said, if we can get it right this time, if we cannot fail, if we can keep all the commandments and keep them to the very nth detail, if we can be pure enough, if we can be right enough, then God will accept us and come and do things that we want him to do. And in comes Jesus and the first starts to fly. It's almost like we've been airlifted into Mark at this point in the grain field. What has happened? Just before this, Jesus has healed a man who is paralyzed but Jesus goes a step further. If that wasn't wonderful enough, he tells the man, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders can't believe what they've been hearing. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? So who is this and what is he saying about himself? And then this happens. And then what the, what's going to happen next? On another Sabbath, Jesus walks in and there's a man with a withered, shrunken hand and Jesus restores that hand on the Sabbath. And they said, You're, you are breaking the law again. Do you see what's happening? The religious impulse has taken over. And the Pharisees are trying to demand behavior, demand being pure, demand being holy. Because if you do it right enough, then God will accept you. 
But Jesus came to end all that. Jesus came to basically detonate that religious impulse, blow it up, and replace it with himself. What do I mean by that? Jesus said it. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And he called himself the Son of Man. Do you know where that comes from? The scriptures, Daniel. Daniel had a vision of this pre-existent human being that was equal with God, had the prerogatives of God who was coming at the end of time to make all things right, to judge every person living or dead. That's who Jesus said he was. And he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He could have said, think, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I'm in control. You're not in control. He didn't do that. He said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is basically saying, look, the Sabbath was made for you. You were once slaves. You had no rest. I want you to live in a world where you can rest from your labors because that's what God did. Remember? Remember in Genesis, the account of creation? What did God do on the seventh day? He rested from his labors. Well, that confused me back in 1962. I thought, well, what, does God get tired? What does that mean? No, no, it doesn't mean that God got tired. It means this. Maybe you have, maybe it's a recipe. Maybe it's a meal that you're planning for a bunch of people. Maybe it's a project that you're doing. Maybe it's a craft that you're building. Maybe it could be all kinds of things. You do get to a point, finally, you work it and work it and work it, and if you want it to be done well, you get to a point where you, you almost want to mess with it, but then you step back. And you say, no, 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 I'm not going to mess with it anymore because it's just the way it needs to be. And then you sort of, well, maybe not. Maybe I need to, nope, nope. It's just the way it ought to be. There it is. And what do you do? You step back from it because it's just, it, you're totally satisfied. God created the world, and he stepped back the seventh day, and he says, I'm totally satisfied with my work. Totally satisfied. And he had a deep rest. Not from being tired, but, but just overwhelmed with, with joy, seeing his radiant universe. He wants that rest for you and me. He gave us his law because we've fallen. We're following human creatures. And that's another complaint I have with all the mainline denominations. That's why I have my own personal battle with the Episcopal Church, USA, because they seem to act and do pronouncements. They seem to act and talk as if we're not fallen, that we are fully capable of doing everything and we can be all that we can be, and all we need to do is make better choices. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't fly, folks, with human nature. It doesn't fly. And other mainline denominations pick up on it. And that's how they can start doing all these things and aping the culture and going out and trying to be as relevant as possible. It all starts from who are we as human beings? Are we fully alive? Are we perfect in ourselves? Is all we have to do just make right choices? Or is something at odds? Is there something that we battle with? Is there something deep inside that we struggle with? I think that's more accurate. And I'll stick with the scripture on this. You see, Jesus came to save us who work, and work is great. 
accomplishments are great. I love them. They're great. They're wonderful. And all, there's so many people in this congregation right now who are at task and accomplishments and do such wonderful things. But there's a work going on underneath this work. There's a work going on underneath that needs to be dealt with in you and me. And what is it? This desperate churning inside, this self-justification, this wanting to be liked, this wanting to be loved, this wanting to, be, to count, to have a say, this want, wanting to be noticed, this desperation that we have to please or to punish people who get in our way. We're wrapped up in ourselves. And Jesus came to unwrap us from ourselves. And so he says, let these disciples eat the grain. You can't put, don't put any more regulations on this Sabbath. It was made for your rest. And let me tell you, I am the source of your rest. That made him very mad. Because in the religious impulse tries to grab things and to manage them. And put, get them into bite-sized things so that we can do them. And then when we do them, then God has to accept us. And then maybe even God's in our debt. And then we can get him to do what we want. Do you see how it goes? It's very, it's very subtle. It's very deceptive. But it's terrible and it will kill us if it's not stopped. I think the best example I've ever seen of this, sort, at least more, as clearly as I can make it, I saw this in a film. It's called Chariots of Fire. Have you ever seen it? older film, um, but it's about a true event that happened in 1924 in the Paris Olympics. There were two sprinters, two athletes for the UK, United Kingdom. One, a Scotsman named Eric Little, who went on to be a missionary in China, died in China. Um, he was fully, as much as I can see in a person, he was fully rested inside because he had a savior who loved him and accepted him. And so Eric, when Eric would go and run and when Eric would go and sprint and go through all these things, he was resting while he did it. And if you asked him about it, they asked him in the film, why do you do this? How can you run with this abandon? He says, well, God made me and he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And you can see him in a dead sprint, furious sprint, but he's almost smiling as he's running. This is a man in a furious dead sprint, and at the same time, he's resting on the inside. Now, contrast this with his colleague, Harold Abrams, whose life seemed to be a life of total self-justification as the means to everything. He was hard to get along with. He trained hard. He worked hard. Eric Little worked hard. But Harold hadn't a, didn't have a minute of rest. And there's a scene when Harold is stretched out and being worked on by his trainer. He's in total relaxation, but he's working very hard. He's worrying about his sprint that's coming. He says, look, all I can think of is when that gun goes off and I see the finish line and I basically have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And I keep saying to myself, can I do it? I don't know that I can do it. I don't know. 
It couldn't be more of a contrast. Eric Little, they're both working very hard, but while Eric's working, he's at rest. While Harold's at rest, he's at work. Self-justification, it's a terrible, cruel thing. But Jesus came to deliver us from this. What about the law's demands? What about the law's obligations? Did he get rid of it? No, it's still binding. It's binding for them. It's binding for us now. So what did Jesus do that made the difference? You know what he did? He purposely came in and lived the Ten Commandments every moment of his life perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. He never made a misstep. He never had even a mixed motive. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, which you and I don't do, even at our best. He loved his neighbor as himself, fully, all the time, which is something that at least I certainly don't do. Why did he do all that? To give that perfect life and that perfect record of keeping the commandments perfectly to you and me as a gift. To satisfy all the requirements of the law. To fulfill the law in your place, in my place. It's as if in 1962, as I'm walking out dejected, looking down with my little piece of burlap, Jesus would walk up and he said, look, take this, show them. Well, I didn't do it. It's okay, I did it. It's really good, take it. In a sheer gift, I walked home with a glittering, glowing Ten Commandments on burlap, completely beautifully done and achieved. Of course, I, think, I would want to take credit, and he knew I would, but I would know who really did it. He did it in my place. He did it in your place. He wants you to have a deep rest, even in the midst of your work, because there's lots of work to be done. But he wants to deal with the work underneath your work that must be stopped. And the only way you can do that is by looking deeply into what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. You see, on the cross, Jesus is writhing in agony. He is totally restless. He is cosmically restless. And even in his life, he said, the Son of Man has no place to live his head. He lost sleep over you. He lost rest. He lost eternal rest over you and me. And he did it willingly on the cross so that you and I could settle back and simply look at the commandments and say, that's really how people should live. I want to do that just out of sheer gratitude. And you'll find yourself doing that more and more as you rest in him. The great reformer Martin Luther put it so well. He said, in the sense of self-justification, he said, God doesn't need your good works, which sounds shocking. But then Luther went on to say, but your neighbor does. And see, only a person who knows deep down inside that they are fully accepted, fully loved, that all their past, present, and future will not stop the love of God from holding them tight and secure. Only a person that's secure is selfless enough to go out and love neighbor as themselves. Have you ever thought about that? Only a person fully secure in who they are can go out and love. It 
It's not about justifying yourself. Jesus did that. He fully justified you on the cross. On the cross, he was crucified for our justification, raised for our justification. He was crucified for our sins, Paul says in Romans 4, and raised for our justification. So with Eric Little, you can say, when I, and fill in the blank, I do it because I feel his pleasure. I love to. You don't have to keep the commandments in the sense that they've been already kept for you. But maybe you can begin to live more in a way where you don't so much have to as you get to. You get to follow him. It's an enormous gift. And it was given to you on the cross by a restless Savior. And so I'll just tell you what he told you. And I'll remind us all, I'll remind myself every day. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll refresh you. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 